As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, there's a lot of talk about the deficit and the debt these days. For a long time, maybe that sort of story went away. But with the tax cuts and people wondering when the next downturn comes back, it really feels like uh, government debt is a big story again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've seen lots of talk about bond vigilantes staging a comeback. Uh, We've seen lots of forecasts from various analysts about just how big the U.S. deficit is going to get, given uh, Trump's propensity uh, to borrow and also enact fiscal stimulus. There is a lot to discuss when it comes to the world of uh, U.S. government debt nowadays. There absolutely is. And I think one of the things that's always driven me crazy, I think both of us crazy, is the sort of uh, naive view about how people talk about government debt, particularly U.S. government (laughs) debt. There's this view often that sort of sees the government as just sort of a typical borrower, like a household or a person trying to borrow money to buy a car. And as we know, it doesn't really work that way. And that can really lead people to a lot of false assumptions like about what interest rates are going to do and what the market is going to do. So I know you say it's a naive viewpoint, but I'm going to make a confession here and say that, you know, in my head, I understand the point that the U.S. government is not the same as, you know, the head of a household who's totting up their income versus their expenditure every month. But deep down in my gut, I have always (laughs) been uncomfortable with the notion that the U.S. can borrow extraordinary amounts of money and not have major, major impacts. So I'm actually really excited to to dig into this subject because hopefully it'll make me feel better. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. There's a non-intuitiveness about it. And even if you say like, oh, you know, the U.S. creates its own money and borrowing for the government is not the same as it is with the household. I know what you're saying about you're like, well, yeah, surely we must be still getting close to some risk. So hopefully... We can maybe uh, use this episode to get a little more comfortable with uh, thinking about what government debt means in a slightly different manner. Yeah, that sounds great. Great. So 
Today, I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast, Brian Romanchuk. He is the author of the Bond Economics blog. He's a financial consultant. He's written about the bond market and what really happens. He's a veteran of the financial industry, and he is going to help us understand what's really happening when the government issues all this debt, which, of course, is a major theme of the news these days. Brian Romanchuk, thank you for joining us on Odd Lots. Let's start with the big question. When someone or a bank or an investor is buying a government bond, what does actually happen? On paper, it does look similar to buying another bond. You know, you transfer money to someone in exchange for a security which has a QCIP. So there is some similarity. You're, you're going through the same settlement process. And, you know, you, you end up with rights. So if you buy a 10 million, you know, once you have control of it, then you get, uh, you know, a certain contractual payments, you know, up until the bond maturity. And any bond, uh, well, standard bonds all have the same sort of structure. We'll give you a certain coupon and then there's a final principal payment. So the cash flow perspective, it, uh, all bonds are similar in that sense. So uh, at, at the risk of using a, a terrible cliche, you know, you're getting this IOU from the government, essentially, um, it, it comes with a coupon, which kind of informs the yields that you're going to get. Most people, when they think of U.S. government debt, they're going to think of treasuries, obviously, uh, and they're going to think of the U.S. Treasury. Is it the U.S. Treasury who is actually selling these things or are there other entities involved? The U.S. Treasury, they auction it. As a Canadian, I forgot the exact details, but it, it's done. There's, there's an auction, and the, the auction uh, is, they say there's going to be a certain number of bonds, you know, and then at a, a certain maturity, and then they line up bidders, and most of the bidding comes from, their, they're called the primary dealers. It's uh, mainly banks, but they're security dealers that deal with the Fed, and they're obligated to bid, and they do most of the bidding. Other entities, you, you can do a non-competitive bid, but that's usually a small part of the market. And once all the bids come in, you, you don't give a price. You just say, I want to buy it at this yield. And then you, uh, once all the, the bids come in, you say, the, you know, it's a lower yield is essentially a higher price. The lowest yields to buy all the bonds win the auction and they, they get the bonds delivered to them. And then usually the primary dealers sell them uh, on to other you know, investors like pension funds, people like us in, the, in the, the secondary market. Now, one of the things that we talked about this in the intro is that we have to dispel the myth that the U.S. is just like any other private sector borrower. And so we've established that the bonds on paper look the same. It looks like any other corporate bond or a loan that might get turned into a bond-like instrument, but it's fundamentally different. And the key difference is the source of funds. So explain to us structurally why the U.S. is a different kind of borrower. Well, the key difference and, uh, you know, for the U.S., the U.S. controls its central bank. And as a, the horrible counterexample is a place like the euro area where the countries don't control their central bank. And because ultimately, all these bonds say we're paying you U.S. dollars and the U.S. dollar is a liability of the U.S. Federal Reserve and the U.S. Federal Reserve, the, the Fed, is owned by the Treasury. So that 
gives you the one big picture difference than any other uh, borrower. And the other, the other issue is f for the, the government, their main concern, they're more concerned a bit uh, about the macro consequences of spending and not so much the financial. Uh, a smaller borrower, like an individual bank, no matter how big they might be, aren't really worried about the effect of their spending on the overall economy. And that is a key difference in understanding, well, you know, why are they different? Okay, so I'm going to let my gut talk now, which is probably a mistake, but here we go. <laughs> so why why can't the U.S. government uh, just borrow as much as it wants, you know, enormous amounts of money? Uh, what, what are the negative effects that are going to happen if it does that? It's not the borrowing per se that's the problem, because the it's you would say if there's a problem, it would be on the spending, because you say what is the government buying? I mean, maybe they're buying good things, maybe it's bad things, but uh, one can always debate, you know, what the the spend money on. But from a macro perspective, what the worry is if the government starts buying too much stuff, they drive up the price of everything. I.e., there's inflation. And they spend a lot and causes inflation. But the borrowing is the flip side of the, the spending. Because if they're spending more than is coming in from taxes, there's a, there's a fiscal deficit. And the way that that's matched in practice is, well, that, that's uh, covered by borrowing. And so the borrowing comes with the, the spending. And so... It's a mistake to worry about the borrowing and say, what what is the government spending on? So this is the part that I think people really have a hard time is why we shouldn't worry about the borrowing. Because in theory, you would think, OK, people are buying government debt and the government debt just keeps going higher and higher. And that maybe one day these buyers will say, whoa, you guys are spending so much money, you're never going to be able to pay it back. Tax revenues aren't coming anywhere close. I'm not going to buy government debt anymore. So this issue, I think, is still what we need to address, which is why is that not a risk that one day lenders just won't show up? Well, I mean, that that is a worry. And it was uh, anyone who's been around the markets. That was a worry. I started in finance in 98 about Japan. And even in 1998, that was a big worry. And that continued. And it was called the Widowmaker trade. People said, well, Japan's going to default within months. And they shorted Japanese government bonds and they kept losing money. By now, people have largely given up on that. But um, the reason why the governments can get away with this uh, generally is they're spending creates the money that then is sucked back in by the bond auction. It's a circular flow. And this is why, yes, there's a demand for, like, you know, there's a demand for borrowing for the government. But at the same time, they're supplying money that then is recirculated back uh, into the bond market. I think this is the just sort of the really key point here. And I want to sort of really dive into this. So let's say the government wants to spend $10 billion more on some new aircraft program for the military. That $10 billion that they spend, I think, as you're saying, winds up in the bank account of some private defense contractor. And then that money in the bank ends up going 
uh, perhaps a circuitous, circuitous route ends up back being invested in government bonds. Do I have that right? Yeah, that, that's basically it. I mean, now it's it's a bit more common because you have excess reserves. But what happens is if the government sends a defense contractor $10 billion, they'll have a $10 billion deposit on the bank. The bank, in return, they, they get $10 billion transferred to them from the Fed, and they have $10 billion as a deposit the Fed. I mean, these are reserves. And, you know, because the, the Federal Reserve is a bank. And so... But the bank doesn't really want. I mean, it, in, independent of what the customer, the customer want, might want that ten billion uh, is sitting in the bank account because it'll have expenses. But the bank itself, what's it going to do with the ten billion? It, it has an asset on the balance sheet, which is a deposit at the Fed, which is a low risk asset, which pays, you know, used to pay nothing, but now very little. And say we want to do something else with this asset on our balance sheet, and so they then go out and say, we want something that gives a higher return. And essentially how the loop gets closed is say, look, hey, there's you know treasury bonds, we buy them. They should have an expected return higher than leaving the money on deposit in the Fed. And so the bank will go out and buy the treasury bonds in the auction because otherwise they're stuck with the deposit the Fed that's paying them very little. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So, Brian, just on the money creation point, when it comes to the U.S.'s uh, government borrowing, a, a lot of people will often point to uh, the special privilege that America enjoys by virtue of the fact that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. In other words, other countries need it. And so they're going to keep buying U.S. treasuries in order um, to stabilize their own accounts and their own currencies and things like that. How much does that play into the ability of the U.S. government to keep borrowing? And, uh, you know, you mentioned the Japan example. People have been worried about Japanese government debt for ages. The yen certainly is not the world's reserve currency. So how come they're able to do that uh, as well as the U.S.? The reserve currency, when you had a fixed fix exchange rate regime, it did make a difference in Bretton Woods, but it's been a long time. Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, I mean, they're not really reserve currencies, but they're pretty much in the same position as the U.S. From the perspective, economic perspective, Let's say you have an Asian central bank. They look, as, as far as the U.S. domestic economy is concerned, they're a private sector borrow, and they have the same choices to, do, you know, as any other private sector investor. What do we do with our, with our U.S. dollar assets? And you know, they could hold cash. They could they could leave money on deposit in the bank, or we could uh, buy a treasury. So they don't really have a choice. If if they want to hold U.S. dollar reserves. They have to do something with it, and by convention, you know, they don't run around. It's 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 frowned upon for central banks to run run around and buy private sector assets like equities. They, there's a little bit of dabbling in equity markets, but that's only a tiny fraction. 
they keep their money in fixed income assets and they want safe ones. I mean, they don't, because they might need to call on their reserves if their currency is under attack. And then, you know, they don't want a, a private debt that's in the process of defaulting when they need liquidity. And so by default, they tend to end the treasury. So it's a two-way street. And to a certain extent, they're trapped uh, into the treasury holdings as well. And in theory, if a foreign holder of dollars, let's say they did want to buy equities instead of treasuries, just for whatever reason, that would create some new holder of those dollars at some other bank. And so it's not like the dollars would just sort of disappear. It would be yet another buyer somewhere else would show up who would have dollars uh, on reserve at a bank and then would theoretically go into treasuries. Yeah, it's it's for every buyer, there's a seller. And scare stories often revolve around forgetting that th- that basic principle. Yeah, there's someone with the dollars has to buy. So, yeah, it, you know, the pricing can change, of course. I mean, that's the thing. If you're worried about pricing, yes, treasury prices would go down relative to other things. But the the flows will still cancel out. So how come Japan can borrow enormous amounts of money? Well, it's the same same issue. There's excess yen. They're creating yen. And um, I haven't looked at the latest data, but they're roughly a trade balance. So it's mainly domestic owners. Very few people want to go in and buy Japanese bonds. I mean, people buy Japanese equities, but not bonds. People just think they're ridiculous, although now maybe not so as much. But the, you know, the yen has is somewhere in the system. And Japanese banks uh, basically have no choice, but they, they buy the bonds. Although recently it's been the uh, the Bank of Japan. They've basically bought most of them up and now the banks just have deposits at the Bank of Japan. But but in the, in the end, it's just that if they spend, the yen end up in the system and the yen has to go somewhere and that drain is the uh, Japanese government bond market. So does it matter if the buyers of your debt are more domestic or more foreign? Is one group better than the other? If you're borrowing in your own currency, I mean, this is very different. If you're like an emerging market borrowing in another country's currency, then you have to be very worried about foreign holders. Or if you have uh, a fixed exchange rate peg, and you see that in the euro area. Then you like domestic things, domestic buyers of your debt, because you have more control over things. But uh, for a floating currency uh, sovereign, if you have a lot of foreign buyers of your debt, it means you're running big current account deficits. And is that good? Is that bad? You know, the U.S., their industrial strategy since the end of World War II has been running trade deficits uh, with you know, strategic partners. And, you know, the the U.S. has costs and there's benefits for the U.S. Right now, people are focusing on the cost, but there's there are benefits the way the U.S. runs a system. But the the foreign buyers, in theory, they could panic more. But at the same time, they don't want to lose money. You know, it's very, you know, if you're a big holder of bonds, you can sell in a panic and you can lose a lot of money. I mean, I, I work for a firm which was large, and if we wanted to, we could lose a lot of money very quickly by selling our, our assets in a panic. Well, that's not our job. Your, your job is not to lose money very quickly, so you generally avoid doing stuff like that. So that's why 
on paper, the uh, foreign investors could get spooked more, but they still want to make money. So it's not clear that they're much different than domestic investors in that respect. Okay, so we've established that for the U.S., credit risk isn't really a thing because the dollars that come to buy treasuries come from the spending. And we've also established that you don't even need to be a reserve currency for this phenomenon to exist because it's in Japan, which has lots of debt, and Canada, which is not anyone's a reserve currency, uh, Australia and New Zealand. Then the obvious question is, why can't all countries do this? And so people think to the extreme example of a country like Venezuela and the debt they have, why can't they just spend and keep a stable currency and a stable market? I'm not an, uh, an emerging market person, but there's policy differences between Venezuela and the U.S. coming down to like the strength of the tax system. The IRS, as everyone knows, is a, is a powerful organization, and it has the, the income tax has the ability of damping economic activity, and so you, it controls inflation better than in a country with a weaker tax system. And my pet theory is that the difference comes down to the effectiveness of the tax regime uh, for, for inflation control. I mean, that's a, a major difference. But there is also a question of uh, what is produced. If, you, if you're dependent on foreign imports for a lot of goods, then your you know, domestic inflation is driven by your exchange rate, whereas the U.S. is largely a closed economy, I mean, relatively a closed economy uh, when compared to other countries, and changes in the exchange rate don't have much of an effect on prices. So you can largely ignore, I mean, if the U.S. dollar falls 10%, it's not really noticeable uh, in domestic prices. So with all the talk of um, the U.S. deficit growing and the U.S. government borrowing more under the current administration, lots of auctions happening, not just of longer term treasuries, but also T-bills. What are you looking out for when it comes to U.S. auctions to sort of gauge the health of the market and to determine how successful an auction is? In terms of success of auctions, that was something that uh, that was a technical detail I didn't worry about. But the the overall trend, it's going to be: Are these deficits going to cause rapid growth? If you're if you're worried about the pricing, which which is the usual worry, what's going to happen to bond yields? If the government's spending a lot, it'll it'll have inflationary pressure, and that's going to force the Fed to hike rates. And that, if you know, from a bond market, uh, you know, pricing perspective, that's your worry: is that the Fed gets more aggressive with rate hikes and pushes up bond yields. That's going to be, you know, much much more of a concern than the um, just supply demand. So the big picture, and if we sort of wrap it all up here, is that it's not the borrowing per se; it's not the gap between the government's expenditures and its revenues via taxes. It's really about the capacity of the economy to absorb all that spending. That sort of is what theoretically would drive inflation. And then the link between inflation and what the Fed does, that would sort of be what ultimately determines what long-term rates are going to do. And then that, you know, once you answer that, then you can decide whether it makes sense to buy a bond or not. 
Yeah, that that's basically it. I mean, and the question is, will I mean, it's not just a simple difference. I mean, this is the question with the the tax cuts. How much of a stimulative impact have they had? I mean, there's been not much of an inflationary impact. It's been good for the stock market. As a lot of money got funneled into into stock buybacks, but by itself, that isn't that isn't putting inflationary pressure on the economy. So there's a big difference between what the deficit is doing and the effect on the economy, and it's hard to model. I mean, it's 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 not an easy thing to say what the effect on the economy is going to be. Presumably, there's a big inflationary difference between, say, rich people getting a tax cut versus a policy that said everybody in the country gets a new bicycle, even if it on a dollar amount, it costs the same. That's presumably the difference. I mean, you might have political. This is where sort of politics comes in. People might disagree, but that's certainly my view that you, you know, hand the tax cut to the bottom 20 percent or you buy stuff much more inflationary than a capital gains tax cut. Brian Romanchuk, thank you very much. Very interesting conversation. And I think these sort of this guts of how this all works out, very rarely discussed when people talk about the bond market. So appreciate you coming up. Thanks. Thanks. uh, It's nice to be on. So, Tracy, are you convinced that it's not a big existential <laughs> threat for the government to run what's uh, on paper very large deficits? I feel like I have a better intellectual grasp of what's going on and the idea that, you know, borrowing from the government isn't actually about moving money from one entity to the other. It's actually about creating money. I get that. But... I gotta be honest, Joe, part of me is still thinking there have to be some consequences. I think there's two things that I think were really useful there. So one is obviously just really understanding this idea of the closed loop, this idea that money never leaves the banking system. Because, I mean, for one thing, we know that all money is digital, basically. And so it can't just disappear. And so if it's going to stay in a bank and a bank will ultimately put it into treasuries, even if it causes many uh, hop skips and a jump. I also think that point that he made about the strength of institutions is really important. And this idea that it's not necessarily the borrowing per se that you want to worry about, but if you want to look at sort of institutional degradation in developed economies, uh, you could certainly point to a lot of things these days. Right. And we've had this discussion at one time or another about how when you're ramping up government borrowing, you're really making big decisions about about what you're going to spend that borrowing on. And those are value decisions that are being made. The other thing I thought was interesting uh, was when he sort of flipped it on his head and said, you don't necessarily need to worry about the borrowing, but about the capacity of the economy to absorb the spending. And that's something that You know, you've seen the Federal Reserve make noises about it, this notion that we are running close to full capacity at this point, and what impact is a whole bunch of fiscal stimulus actually going to have on the economy? Absolutely. And then also just this idea that there's like going to be different growth or inflationary impacts of different kind of fiscal policies. So, right, if like, you know, if you were to give uh, Bill Gates a, uh, you know, $1 billion tax cut or some, you know, whatever it is, it's probably not going to do much because Bill Gates has more money than he knows what to do with. 
Whereas if you were to put it towards consumption and particularly consuming something that we don't have much capacity in, like housing or something like that, then you might see a real uh, growth or inflationary impact. Or bicycles. I like your free bicycle idea. Let's do that one. Yeah, I support that. One other <laughs> point I think is key and that and if you just sort of think to really sort of drive it home in the last year, there has been all this question is like, all right, we're the tax cuts are blowing out the deficit and people's like, oh, who's going to buy all that debt? And the simple answer is like, well, a bunch of people just got tax cuts and so they're going to have a lot more money. So we could sort of already know who's going to buy it. It's those people that have more money in their bank account. Like it's sort of if you think of this closed loop phenomenon, it allows you to sort of anticipate who is the new entity that's going to be doing the buying. The closed loop strikes again. I like it. Yes. All right. Well, this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest, Brian Romanchuk, on Twitter at Brian Romanchuk. And be sure to follow our producer, Topher Forges at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.